0: Page 422, we're going to the 88th Psalm, which is actually the darkest psalm in the whole Psalter, and one of the darkest passages in all of the Bible. One might even wonder when you first read this psalm, what is it doing in the Bible? But um, God inspired it, and it's here for our building up and for our good. And not only that, but the psalms were songs, so God expected... Old Covenant Israel to sing this very dark song. We sang songs like It Is Well With My Soul and things like that, which have pain and sorrow in them, but there's hope in them. This song has almost no hope, the very least hope of all psalms in all the Bible. So let's read Psalm 88, and as we read it, we'll worship God in the reading of His Word. We'll pray, and then we will meditate on it together. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah for the choir director, according to Mahalath Le'anoth, a masculine of Heman, the Ezrahite. Lord Yahweh, God of my salvation, I crowd before you day and night. May my, may my prayer reach your presence. Listen to my cry. For I have had enough troubles, and my life is near Sheol. I am counted among those going down to the pit. I am like a man without strength, abandoned among the dead. I am like the slain lying in the grave, whom you no longer remember, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest parts, the lowest part of the pit, in the darkest places, in the depths. Your wrath weighs heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have distanced my friends from me. You have made me repulsive to them. I am shut in and cannot go out. My eyes are worn out from crying. Yahweh, I cry to you. All day long I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do do departed spirits rise up to praise you? Selah. Will your faithful love be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of oblivion? But I call to you for help, Lord. In, my, in the morning, my prayer meets you. Yahweh, Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? From my youth, I have been afflicted and near death. I suffer your horrors. I am desperate. Your wrath sweeps over me. Your terrors destroy me. They surround me like water all day long. They close in on me from every side. You have distanced loved one and neighbor from me. Darkness is my only friend. Father in heaven, we praise you because even in the deepest, darkest despair, there is a ray of hope. We praise you for Psalms like this that teach us how to grieve, teach us how to mourn, teach us how to ask questions, teach us how to struggle. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to understand and to benefit from this passage in the way you intend. So we ask for your Holy Spirit's almighty, infinitely powerful help to give strength to our souls. Rock for our feet. You tell us that youths may stumble, or youths may grow weary and faint. Young men stumble and fall, but those who wait on you will not grow weary. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. And so, Lord, we wait on you. Draw near to us here in our time of need and even raise the dead, saving those who at this moment don't know you yet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Is it ever acceptable to be angry with God? Some situations or circumstances are so horrific, so filled with grief and pain or victimization, that it might seem okay or even right to be angry with God. Life is hard. God warns us of that, and life experience reaffirms that truth, that if we live long enough, we will suffer. The only option is perhaps to die young and quick and sudden, but if you live long enough, you will suffer. We will suffer directly, and we'll suffer indirectly. Now, this difficulty and discomfort may be caused by physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain, spiritual pain, or even mental pain. And when there is pain, there is darkness. And the darkness could be on the outside, or even worse, the darkness can be on the inside. Now on the outside, we would call that maybe external darkness. Darkness in our lives that can be, that are caused by the circumstances around us, that cause us pain. Bereavement, the loss of a loved one, tension in a relationship, the loss of a job, financial stress, persecution. Those are things outside that can put pressure on our souls and make it feel dark. But often, when faced with external darkness, there are times where we can find internal light and peace. And so we can find the peace that passes all understanding, that guards our hearts and minds when we are in externally dark situations. Like the hymn writer wrote, we sang, When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows, like sea billows roll, there's the sorrows around me, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's internal light and peace in the midst of external darkness. But then there are times when you also have internal darkness and there is no peace for your soul. Sometimes that's coupled with external darkness, though not always. This is the darkness of the soul when there is no peace inside. There is no joy deep down that you can taste or experience or feel. It's only hopelessness and despair and depression. This does not only happen to non-Christians. This even happens to Christians. And it happened to the author of this song here. Psalm 88. Now, in this psalm, the author asks for one thing. He only makes one prayer request, and that's in verse 2. Look at verse 2. May my prayer reach your presence. Listen to my cry. All he wants is for God to what? Listen. He just wants God's ear. That's his one prayer request. He gives five reasons why, or four reasons, four or five reasons why. Look at the first word of verse 3. So he says, listen to my cry for, or because, and then he lists reasons why God should listen to his prayer, why God should grant him his prayer request. Now, I told you this is the darkest psalm in all of the Bible, but God put this here for a reason. This is not a mistake that Psalm 88 is in your Bible. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, including this passage here, breathed out by God and profitable. God put this psalm in the Bible for a few reasons, maybe to serve as an example of what we should do or how we should cry out to God when we're in despair, when darkness covers our soul. So here's the main idea. Cry out to God when darkness covers your soul. You will face times of external darkness, no doubt, unless you die young and suddenly. If you, do, if you have external darkness, you will likely, almost for sure, face internal darkness. What are you going to do in that moment? The main point of the psalm is cry out to God When darkness covers your soul, when it goes on the inside and not just on the outside. Now the psalmist here gives us five ways and five reasons together, five ways and reasons to cry out to God when darkness covers or attacks our soul. So yeah, fill in the blanks there in your notes if you want to use that. Number one in verses one and two. Look at verse one and two. Yahweh, God of my salvation, I cry out before you day and night. May my prayer reach your presence. Listen to my cry. Look at verse nine. My eyes are worn out from crying. Yahweh, Lord, I cry out to you all day long. I spread out my hands to you. So here's the first thing we learn. Cry out to God directly. To you, cry out to God directly because he hears. Okay, I know that's the prayer request, but that's the, that's the, that's the lesson here. Cry out to God directly because he hears. Now, who is he crying out to in verse 1? You have two, three descriptions of this person that Heman, that that the author, is addressing. What's the first word in verse 1? Lord, right? Lord, and then God of my what? Salvation. So who is he talking to? To God, right? And who is God? God is the creator and sustainer of the whole universe. God is our maker. And he sustains the whole world. So this is the person we're talking to. We're talking to God who's in charge. But he doesn't just call him God. He calls him by his name. See the word Lord there in your Bible? If you notice, the Lord is all what? Capitalize, which means it's not the word Lord, Adon or Adonai in the Old Testament. In Hebrew, what is the word there? Yahweh, and that is God's personal name. Just like my kids might call me Dad or Abba, but that's not my personal name. Okay, so God is not God's name, that's his role. Like Dad is not my name, that's my role to my children. But I do have a personal name, and God has a personal name. And God's personal name is Yahweh. Or as the King James uh, transliterates it, Jehovah. What does that mean? What does it mean to be Yahweh? What does his name mean? In Exodus 3.15, it says this. Moses was going to deliver the people out of Egypt. And Moses said, well, what if they ask me what your name is? What do I tell them? And God said to Moses, say this to the Israelites. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, The God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. By what name? Yahweh, the God of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why does God care to tie his name to three men? A grandfather, a father, and a son? What did he promise Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? A land, a people, and a what? A promise of a blessing, right? Blessing all the nations. Because the whole world under Adam and Eve, when they ate the fruit, they were cursed, right? And so we're all cursed to die for our sins. And yet, in the middle of the darkness, God promises Abraham blessing. Not just for Abraham, not just for Isaac, not just for Jacob, but for all the ethnic people groups through Abraham's seed. And so God says, This is my name, the God of blessing in the midst of curse, the God of light in the midst of darkness. This is my name, Yahweh, the God who keeps his covenant promises, which is why in verse one it says, Yahweh, God of my what? God of my salvation. Because God saves us. What does God save us from? He doesn't save you from your in-laws, he doesn't save you from a stubbed toe, perhaps. He doesn't save you from, from financial hardship necessarily. He saves you from sin. And he saves you from the consequences of sin. What is the consequence of sin? The wages of sin is death. He saves us from eternal death, from hell. And who's the one who's executing or pouring out, meeting out that punishment in hell? Who's the punisher? Who's the executor and the judge? God is not Satan. God is the one who pours out his wrath. So, in one sense, God is saving us from God. He saves us from himself. Or you could say he saves us from ourselves because our sin would cause us to go against him. So, God saves us from himself. And God is the God of our salvation, saving us from sin, just like he saved the Israelites from the angel of death when he was killing all the firstborn of Egypt. They all deserve to die. Yet he passes over his people because of the blood and saves them. He is the God of salvation. And this is the only glimmer of hope. There's a few other little little dots of light. But this is the only glimmer of hope in the whole psalm. It's all downhill from here. Verse 1, God of my salvation, Yahweh. And it just just goes all downhill in terms of darkness from here. How often does he cry out though? Look at verse 1. I cry out how often? Day and night before you. In verse 9, it says that my eyes are, are worn out from crying. Lord, I cry out to you all day long, every day, all day, every day, he cries out to God. And what's his request? We already said it in verse 2. God, would you please listen to my cry? I'm crying every day, all day, days on end, weeks on end, months on end, years on end. And as we'll see even later, maybe even decades on end, I'm crying out to you. Are you listening, God? Could you please hear me? That's the prayer request. Now, before we go to the second point, let's just apply this briefly. Here's the point, brothers and sisters. God hears you when you cry out to him because he relates to us. He made us to relate to him. So cry out to him directly. And what I mean by directly is don't complain to others about him primarily. Complain to who? Him. Go straight to him. Don't merely talk to others. Go to him. Don't bottle up your pain in yourself or say, you know what? God doesn't care. I'm just going to deal with this on my own. Go to God. And for our church family, brothers and sisters, you're going to have other brothers and sisters leaning on you in times of darkness. When they're, when they're in their season of darkness, they will lean on you. And what you need to remember is that you are not God. So yes, should you be there for them? Absolutely. But remind and encourage them to go directly to who? To God, And when they can't, because sometimes we won't be able to. We're just too weak to even pray. Then you pray with them and go, to direct, go directly to God with them. Let me bring you into his presence. Let's pray together. Let's go directly to God because he cares. That's point number one. No, number two. I should use my left hand because of my pinky here. Number two. Or I could go like this. Number two. Cry out to God honestly because he cares. Verses three through five. Cry out to God honestly because he, or because he cares. I'm sorry, the first one was, he hears. Because he hears. The second one is, because he cares. The psalmist assumes here that God wants to know the details. Look at, listen to verse 3. Why should you listen to my cry, God? For I have had enough troubles, and my life is near Sheol. Now he's assuming here, the psalmist is assuming, that God knows his what? His troubles. You know what I've been through, God. God knows the details. God wants to know the details because God cares about the details. God doesn't just care for you generally. As if, oh yeah, I care for all of my church. No, he cares for you individually and specifically with what you are going through. Your external darkness, your internal darkness. God cares about it all to the very last detail. And that's why Peter tells us, cast all your cares upon him because he what? Cares for you. So, what does the psalmist say in verse 3? I have had enough trouble. Now, his troubles here are not named. We don't know what the troubles are. And I like that God put it this way in most of the psalms. Because if God named, or if, if him in here named the trial, then we would say, oh, that's not my trial. And we wouldn't relate, right? But it's, it's intentionally broad and vague. It's general. God knows. We don't know. But he's saying, God, you know, I've had enough troubles. I have so much trouble, verse 3, that my life is near Sheol. Now, Sheol is not necessarily hell. It's the place of the dead. Sometimes, in some Psalms, it refers to the place of the dead under judgment, something like what we would call hell. Other times in the Psalms, it merely refers to the place of the dead, not in punishment, but just neutrally the grave. Okay? So, we'll take that here as, I'm near death. My life is, I'm practically, I'm dying here, God. I'm near death. You know my troubles. Look at verse 4. I am counted among those going down to the pit. All these people who are dying, I'm one of them. Who are the people with terminal diseases or terminal illnesses who are on their way to their, they're on their, way to their deathbed? I'm one of those. I'm counted among them. In verse 4, I am like a man without strength. I can't take it anymore. I am in utter weakness. I can't take any more pain and I can't take the pain that I already have anymore. I got no strength left. I'm done. Verse 5. It's like I'm abandoned among the dead. I'm like the slain lying in the grave. It's like I'm already dead. Continuing in verse 5. I'm like those lying in the grave whom you no longer remember and who are cut off from your care. It's like you've already cut me off, God. I feel like you forgot me. You remember other people and their pains, but you're forgetting about me, Lord. I feel cut off from your hand, cut off from your care. Like those who are not allowed in the temple because they weren't holy, the temple precincts. Or like those who are unclean, like an unclean leper who's not allowed in the land of the people. That's how the psalmist feels. Listen to Numbers 9.13 to remind you of what it means to be cut off. But the man who is ceremonially unclean, Moses writes, is not on a journey, and yet fails to observe the Passover, is to be cut off from his people. Because he did not present the Lord's offering at its appointed time, that man will bear the consequences of his sin. What does it mean to be cut off? It means to be cut off from God and his people. You're no longer part of the people of God. And the psalmist here is saying... You're cutting me off, God. It's like I'm one you don't remember anymore. It's like you cut me off. I'm unclean. I'm no longer part of your covenant, people. That's what it feels like. So, what is God telling us from this point? Cry out to God honestly because he cares. Now, the psalmist is saying it feels like you don't care, but what is he still doing? He's crying out to who? He's still crying out to God. So even though he's saying it feels like you don't care, I'm still assuming, God, that you do care, Because you know, and I'm still here crying out to you. So if you are a Christian here, what's the lesson here? Go to God with your details and let him know how you honestly feel. Let him know how you honestly feel. For our church members, what does this mean for us? Let's give members, let's give fellow church members and and Christian family, let's give them space to sound like the psalmist without clobbering them over the head with a memory verse. Right? Right? if they're in the deep darkness of their soul and they're saying, I feel like God's left me. God's abandoned me. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Is that true? Yes. And should you say that? Yes, eventually. But there's a time for it. Give space to each other to mourn, to grieve, to cry out honestly. God, this is how I feel. I feel like you don't care. Where are you? I feel like you've rejected me. Let's give our brothers and sisters space. And yet... Let's still be near them in our, in our presence. And let's not be scared to eventually and prayerfully speak the truth after listening long to our church family members and listening to God in their grief. Okay? That's number two. Cry out to God honestly because he cares. Number three, cry out to God theologically because he, is, he controls Okay, crowd to God theologically because he controls. Sorry to use a big word there. Couldn't figure out another word. So there it is. Crowd to God theologically because he controls. Verses 6 through 8. Look at verse 6. Notice this. You have put me in the lowest parts of the pit, in the darkest places in the depths. Your wrath weighs heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have distanced my friends from me. You have made me repulsive to them. I am shut in and can't go out. Who's he blaming here? God, right? You can't miss it in these verses over and over again. God, you put me here. Your waves are crashing on me. You did this. You put me here, God. That's what he's saying in verse 6. You're the one who did this. You're in control. I know the Bible. It says, our God is in the heavens. Psalm 115 verse 3. He does whatever he pleases. You're in control, God, and yet you put me here. In verse 7, your wrath weighs heavily on me. You've overwhelmed me with all your waves. Now, the wrath of God is punishment for sin. Remember, he feels like he's cut off, right? He feels like he's not even saved. So he feels like God's punishing him here. God, your wrath weighs heavily. Now, God does discipline us, right? Just like parents, good parents, discipline their children, not in anger, but under self-control, they discipline their children for their good. Right? We do that. And so it could be your wrath, your discipline is on me. But I think he's just being honest. He feels like he's not, he's not saying, I, I'm searching my heart and I don't believe. He's saying, I feel like you're treating me like I'm not a Christian. Like I'm not saved. In Old Testament terms here. So you're pouring your wrath on me, God. And I feel it. It feels like I'm cut off, like I don't even know you. Or like you don't even know me. Look at verse 7. He says, you have overwhelmed me with all your waves. What does that sound like? Can you think of when people are overwhelmed by waves in the Bible? What stories come to your mind? I'm thinking of at least three. Who? Paul. Okay, that's four. Paul, I forgot he was shipwrecked. What else? Peter. That's five. Okay. You guys are going New Testament on me. Good. Yes, Peter was drowning. Good. Jonah. Two more. Before Noah. And one that you probably won't get. But I think these are the two in his mind. Because he's he's feeling like a non-Christian. He's feeling like God's neglecting him. Like Noah... Not Noah was in the flood, but the people who were drowned, right? The people who died in the flood. I'm overwhelmed. You're cutting me off. I'm drowning. Your wrath is on me. It was God's wrath that, that punished everyone and drowned everyone in the flood, right? And then there's another place where God's wrath drowned people. The armies, the armies of Egypt, right? They were under God's judgment as they chased the people. God overwhelmed them with his waves. And the psalmist is saying, I feel like them. I feel like I'm not Noah and his family. I feel like I'm on the outside. I feel like the the armies of Egypt that were neglected by you and judged by you. That's how I feel right now in my pain. God, you're afflicting me. You're the one overwhelming me with your waves. Verse 8, you've distanced me from my friends. I feel isolated. Now, socially, I feel isolated. I feel like no one could relate to me or no one wants to talk to me. Everyone wants to stay away from me. They feel awkward around me. And so now he, now the, the psalmist is isolated socially. My friends, my acquaintances, they're distant from me. This is why as a church family in our church covenant, we promise to bear each other's burdens. And, and in that, bear, visit one another. Be there with each other in our pain to meet each other's needs. Because it could feel like you're isolated and you could misinterpret it as God judging you. Not only does he feel isolated socially, he says you've made me repulsive to them or abhorrent or a horror to them, He says, I am shut in and I can't go out. He feels physically confined, physically isolated, not just socially and relationally, but physically. I feel isolated. God, where are you? Now notice, he's saying you have done this. In other words, he believes, as the Bible teaches, that God is in control. And he is. I already quoted to you Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens, He does whatever He pleases. Ephesians 1.11, God works out everything according to the counsel of His will. That's every detail. Now, God is not ultimately bound. God is not ultimately bound by anyone or anything outside of Himself. His plans never fail. And things will go exactly as He intends them for, for them to go, ultimately. Whether it's Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. Whether it's Job under Satan's attack. Or whether it's Jesus, betrayed by one of his disciples, conspired against successfully by the Jewish leaders, hung on a cross and executed by Roman soldiers because of a Roman governor who was too wimpy and weak to stand his ground. Even in all of those tragedies, God is in control. And those things happen by God's design, His purposes. The psalmist here sees God is ultimately behind it and able to change it if he wanted to. And it's true, God could change it if he wanted to. Now understand, we're not saying that God is evil or God is the author of evil. God commits evil. We can say God ordains evil because he does. He plans it, you could say, right? You intended it for evil. Remember Joseph and his brothers, Genesis 50, 20? You intended it for evil when you sold me, but God what? God what? Intended it for good. God intended it. He intended the selling into slavery. It's part of his design. And the psalmist here gets that. And yet God is not evil. They might intend it for evil. God is not evil. The psalmist never charges God with evil, and neither should we. Now, I'm not trying to, and neither should you. We should not try to solve the tension and pain in the problem of evil by making God less in control than he is. Oftentimes when we get into these tragedies, we start to theologize and say, well, God did not know about this. Or God, God isn't in control in this situation. Brothers and sisters, let me just say to you, I understand why you might say that because you want to sympathize with people, but that's just biblically incorrect. And you're do- I understand why you're doing it because you love them. But what you're doing is you're cutting off the ground, the solid rock, granite ground that they're going to stand on in their tragedy. If you say God is not in control or God didn't pur- God has no purpose in this, you're cutting off the very foundation on which they will stand. Don't do that. Psalmist gets it, we get it, the Bible says it, God is in control. Now that doesn't remove the mystery. Here's where the mystery is what is God's purpose? I don't know. That's where the mystery is. It's not a mystery that he's in control, it's not a mystery that he has no purpose. or or whether he has a purpose or not. The mystery is what is his specific purpose in every tragedy. We don't have that in the Bible. That's where faith comes in. It doesn't remove the mystery. It properly locates where the mystery is. So if you're not a Christian, you might say, PJ, that's why I don't want to be a Christian, because it doesn't make sense that you could believe in a God who's all-powerful and all-good, yet allows suffering. I'll address that at the end. So, let me just punt now, and let's go to number four. So, point number three was, cry out to God theologically, because he's it, he controls. Point number four, cry out to God worshipfully, because he loves. Chap- uh, verse, verses 10 through 12, cry out to God worshipfully, because he loves. Look at verse 10. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do departed spirits rise up to praise you? Now, these questions come from a heart that wants to praise who? Who does he want to praise? God, he's saying, God, if you kill me, who's going to praise you? I live to praise you. I'm writing psalms. I write songs to praise and glorify you. You're treating me like you're distancing me. You're cutting me off. Who's going to write the songs? Who's going to praise you? Do the dead praise you in the grave? Are we any use to you for your glory when you put us down? No, that's what he thinks, right? Apparently not. Why would you do this? Here's how we would say today. What good is it, God, I'm trying to evangelize my family. I'm trying to evangelize my block, my, my neighborhood. What good is it, God, for me to evangelize the lost and spread the gospel and make disciples if I'm dead? How effective can I be in spreading your glory, sharing the gospel with non-Christians, if I'm dead? That's, a, that's, the, that's the effect of his question here. Do the dead praise you? Do the dead spread your glory in praising you? Don't you want the Great Commission to keep advancing, Lord? Don't you want the disciples to be made in all nations and ethnic people groups? The psalmist gets that. Will your faithful love, verse 11, be declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon, that's the place of the dead? Will your wonders be known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of oblivion? Of the pit? The psalmist understands something here. Why do I say he's worshiping here? He wants to praise who? God. He wants God's glory To be sung and spread and declared everywhere. That's what he wants. And why do I say, so he wants to worship God. That's what he wants to do. Why do I say, um, cry out to God worshipfully because he loves? How is God loving in wanting us to worship him? Here's, let me just give you a brief, um, follow, follow this train of thought. God loves us by wanting what's best for us, right? That's what love is. Love is wanting and acting as best you can for the best interest of the one you love, right? You want what's best for the one you love. Does God want what's best for us? Yes. So in that sense, he loves us. God also wants us to praise him. Therefore, praising God is what's best for us. Do you guys get that? God wants what's best for us. God wants us to praise him with our whole lives, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do. Do all to the glory of God and the final salvation of the many. God wants that for us, and he wants what's best for us. So therefore, what's best for us is to live a life of glorifying and praising God. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. But praising God and glorifying God is not just on the outside, it's also from the inside, right? From the heart. And when we have true heartfelt joy and happiness in God, we burst forth with praise, or we eke it out in the midst of our pain. But the point is, when it's on the inside, it comes out. For from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So so what we have here is God, he's saying, God, you want us to praise you. Fill my heart with joy. You love me. You want me to praise you because you love me. And you want, you know that's where my happiness is, is in, you pra- in, is in me praising you. You love me, so I'm crying out to you worshipfully. Help me. Help me to praise you. The psalmist gets that. He understands that God is loving us by creating us to enjoy Him. And so in verse 11, he says, Will your faithful love... Now, if you have a different translation, your translation might say in verse 11, Loving kindness or steadfast love. Another good translation would be covenant love. He's saying, God, you made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You made a covenant with us in blood through the Passover lamb and through the sacrificial system of the temple. Who's going to declare your covenant love if I die? You're the God who keeps your covenant. So, he knows God allows himself to be found by those who seek him, and he knows that God wants to be praised and glorified. So, individual, Christian, what is God telling us? Express your desire for your happiness in God's glory. Tell God in your pain, God, I want to praise you. I do want to love you. I do love you. Help me help me to praise you remember that god loves us in even giving us the desire to praise him do you remember romans 3 10 through 12 there's none righteous no not one there's no one who does good all have turned aside all have walked, all have went astray there's none who does there's none who seeks god it says in romans 3 10 through 12 no one seeks god so if you're seeking god who's the one doing it who's the one empowering you and enabling you and initiating in you the doing of it god is so even in the midst of the psalmist crying in despair, who's working in him? God is. He doesn't feel it. God, you left me. I'm like a non-Christian. But he's going to God, which means God is actually working in him. God is loving him in that moment. So cry out to God. Cry out to God worshipfully because he loves us. As a church family, what is God telling our church family? He's telling our church family that we need to point out evidences of God's grace in each other. Because you know what? We honestly feel like God's not working in us most of the time. Most members of our church, including myself, most of the time, we don't, we're not aware that God is working in us. And you know what God does? He shows it to another member of our church. And he'll show you God's working in another member. And you know what you have the privilege and responsibility of doing? Letting that person know. Brother, I see God working in you. Sister, God has not left you. Look at the way you're responding. God is here. He's loving you. Church family, let's encourage one another by identifying evidences of God's active grace in each other's lives. Number four, cry out to God worshipfully because he loves. And lastly, cry out to God patiently because he's there. Verses 14 or 13 to 18. Cry out to God patiently because he's there. Look at verse 13. But I call to you for help, Lord, Yahweh. In the morning my prayer meets you. Notice this. He knows that his prayer is meeting who? God. I know you hear it, God. I know you hear it. I know I'm praying that you would hear it. But I also know that you know all things, so I know you hear me. We could say that as Christians. I'm coming in the name of Jesus. It doesn't feel like you hear me, God, but I know you hear me. He knows it. Verse 14, Lord, I know you hear me, but here's my question, my last question to you, God. If you hear me, why do you what? Why do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? He feels rejected even with much prayer. This is what he doesn't understand. I'm a covenant child of God. God's covenant means that we have an eternal relationship together. How can the covenant keeping God reject his covenant child? That doesn't make any sense to him. And it doesn't make sense, right? I mean, if God rejected his covenant child, he is not being faithful to the covenant, right? He's not being faithful to his promise. So that's why he closes with this question. You're my covenant God. I'm your covenant child. And yet, why do you reject me? And why do you hide your face from me? Do you remember the the covenant blessing that Aaron would pronounce on his people? May Yahweh bless you and keep you. May Yahweh make his face, what? Shine on you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh look on you with favor and give you peace. That's the covenant blessing on God's covenant people. And he's saying, God, I'm supposed to have this covenant of your face shining on me. And yet, why do you hide your face from me? That doesn't make any sense. Verse 15, from my youth. Now, how long has he been in the suffering? From my youth, I have been afflicted and near death. I suffer your horrors. I am desperate. How long has he been in this darkness? Years? Maybe decades? Wow. Maybe decades. And yet, who's he crying out to? God. How often? Every day. All day. Every day. For years. For decades. You know what we call that? Crying out to God patiently. He's waiting. He's persevering. He's not quitting. He's patiently crying out to God because he knows that God is there. Look at verse 16. Again, these are repetitions from earlier, so we're not going to belabor it, but your, your wrath sweeps over me. Your terrors destroy me. They surround me like water all day long. There's that imagery of the flood again or being drowned. They close in on me from every side. It's like I don't have your favor. I'm one of the ones who are judged. And look at verse 18. Now, the other psalm, the other psalms that have this darkness, they end with hope. But God, you are my salvation and my rock, and you will come through in the end. Something like that. How does this psalm end in verse 18? You have distanced loved one and neighbor from me. Darkness is my only or my closest friend. Or my friends are in darkness, which means I'm all by myself and all I'm left with is the... Darkness. So, either way, it's the same thing. Whichever way you translate it, the point is I have no other friends. I'm by myself in darkness. So, darkness is, in a sense, my only friend, my best friend, my exclusive friend. And yet, in all of this, he's patiently, persistently, perseveringly pursuing the Father in prayer. What are the main lessons we get from this psalm? Here's the main lessons. Be honest, right? Be honest with God. It's never wise to be dishonest with God. why? He knows anyways, right? No, no use in lying and, 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 and putting on an ultra-spiritual God. I trust you and I know you're so good and I just am so overwhelmed by your love. Like you know, if you're not, just say you're not. Be honest with God. Now, it would be be better if we learned his perspective and understood it and were able to to feel his perspective. But even if we're not, it's always wisest to be honest with God. But secondly, don't just be honest, be humble. These are not the cries of an antagonistic atheist, right? Where are you, God? Look at my pain. You don't exist. You're not real. This is not an antagonistic atheist or agnostic praying. Nor is it Nor is it a Christian who's blaming God and demanding from God an answer. You owe me, God. Look at all my years of service, God. Look at my ministry. I've been faithful to you, God. Look at all I've given. I've taken up my cross and followed you for all these years. You owe me, God. It's not humility. That's self-entitlement, right? That's not the psalmist here. He's going directly to God, but he's humble. God doesn't owe us anything except wrath. Right? And he gets that. These cries, D.A. Carson writes, these cries actively engage with God, fully aware that he's our only real source of help. There's no smug confidence or contempt towards God. Humility shows itself in a lifetime of perseverance. Now, if you're not humble, you'll give up early, right? God, I prayed for you for five days. You haven't answered me. I'm done with you. I'm moving on to something else or someone else. That's Pride. So when I say be honest and be humble, I'm saying humbly persevere in calling out to God. And here's a, here's a, another thing with be honest and humble: be both and not w- either or. Be both honest and humble, and not either honest or humble. Because if you're on if you're only honest but not humble, you're going to be arrogant. You're going to be murmuring. You're going to be complaining because there's no humility. So don't just be honest. Honesty is good, but honesty is not. To be alone. But don't just be humble. Humility without that honesty leads to, like I said, pretending. A fake piety. A fake spirituality. God, it's all good. And it feels all good. It doesn't feel all good all the time. And so you could be honest. And humble. Okay, let's go to the non-Christian now. I told you I'd say this at the end, so here it is. If you're not a Christian, you might be saying, PJ, this is why I would never be a Christian. Because Christianity makes no sense. How can God be in control like you said and be all good and all loving like you said and yet there's all this suffering and evil in the world? Either God's not good and he's in control so he lets it happen or he's good but not in control so he wants to change things but he's too weak or unable to change the circumstances. But he can't be good and in control at the same time. That makes zero sense if you're saying that you believe in both of those. If you did have both of those, he would stop all evil, all victimization, all tears, all crying right away, right now, yesterday. So your God, the God of the Bible, is a, is a lie. It doesn't exist. Here's our, here's our answer. Well, we do say as Christians that the Bible, God of the Bible can exist. And let me give you two points for it. First of all, if you have a God who's so great and so transcendent and so high that you could be mad at Him for not changing the situation and not stopping all the evil and suffering in the world, then this God who's so high and so great has to be high and great enough to actually have good reasons that you don't understand for why He's doing things. Right? You can't have it both ways. You can't be mad at God for being so high and so great and then say that He's not high and great enough to have a reason that I don't understand. You can't have it both ways. Either God is not high and great, or if you're going to be mad at him for being high and great, you have to acknowledge that he's so high and great that he can have reasons beyond your understanding. Right? Doesn't that make sense? Just logically speaking? If he's God, he can have reasons that we don't get. So, well, before I get to the second answer to it, um, let me me talk to the Christians first, and I'll go back to the non-Christians. Christian church family. Let me talk to you for a second here. What if... The darkness is too strong and too stubborn that we actually give up. What if I just throw in the towel and stop seeking God because I can't take the darkness anymore? What if I can't hold on anymore, so I'm just going to let myself be overwhelmed by these tidal waves of darkness, and I'm just going to give up? I'm just going to respond, I'm indifferent, I don't care anymore, I'm, I'm, I'm checking out now. I give up. What if I end up there? Won't God reject me? Because the wages of sin is death? Here's the answer. Jesus entered the darkness for us. This psalmist is crying because he feels like God has left him. But has God left him? No. He is is this psalmist quitting yet at this in this psalm? Is he quitting? No. But Jesus was treated like a quitter. Jesus was swallowed up in the darkness. It says he, he was hanging on the cross from the third hour to the ninth hour. And at the sixth hour, noon, around noon, darkness covered the land. And from noon until 3 p.m., he hangs on the cross in darkness, covered in darkness, the darkness of God's judgment. And at the end of it, at 3 p.m., at the ninth hour, before he dies, he says, My God, my God, what's the next word? Just the next word. Why? Why? Why am I in darkness? Why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? Why, God? Jesus is the only human on this side of death who has been fully and actually abandoned by God into complete darkness. The only others who've experienced it are those who are in hell right now. But on earth right now, or while walking on earth, Jesus is the only human to truly experience Psalm 88 in actuality, not just in perception. So the answer of the psalmist, look at verses 10 through 12, what are his questions? Do you work wonders for the dead? Did God work wonders for Jesus when he died? Yes. Do the dead, do departed spirits rise up and praise you? Do dead people, do the dead, do they praise God even now in heaven? Yes. Will the faithful love of God be declared in the grave and his faithfulness in Abaddon, the place of the dead? Yes. The death, in the grave, is the very apex and source of the praise, right? We will forever, in the new heavens and new earth, praise the Lamb of God who was what? Slain! Yes, the dead will praise you. Yes, your faithful love will be declared in the grave. Yes, your wonders will be known in the darkness, and your righteousness in the land of oblivion. In Christ, these questions are answered yes, because He died and entered the darkness for us. But Jesus doesn't only enter the darkness for us. He conquers the darkness for us. He doesn't die and lose to the darkness. He conquers the darkness. In John 1, 4-5, it says, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. John twelve forty six. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies... He will live. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So darkness and death and the grave are used by God when Christ died. Right? It's the ultimate instrument of our salvation. So here's the point. Darkness and death have a design. Your pain has a purpose or pain has a purpose because Christ's pain had a purpose. His darkness and death had a design. So first and foremost, his darkness and death have a design. But also in our experience of darkness, death and pain. We it has a design as well, a purpose. So here's our Christian hope. We sing it right in Christ alone. There in the ground, his body lay Light of the world by what? By darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, since cursed has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus conquers the darkness. But he doesn't only enter our darkness for us. He doesn't only conquer the darkness for us. He communes in the darkness, with us. Paul prayed that the thorn in the flesh would be removed from him in 2 Corinthians 12. And then what did Jesus say to him? My grace is what? Sufficient Sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Then Paul says, therefore I will most gladly boast in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may what? Reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and in pressures because of Christ. I take pleasure... He's saying, I take pleasure in darkness because of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And it says in Hebrews 4 that we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but has been tempted in every point like we are yet without sin. Even in the middle of the deepest darkness that he actually experienced, Jesus did not sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace boldly to find grace to help in our time of need. He will never leave us or forsake us. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He communes with us in our darkness. So if you're not a Christian, let me give you the second reason why we could believe in a God who's in control and yet loving. Because God is not uncaring. Other people have philosophical answers to the problem of evil. Well, I could, and I just gave you a, somewhat a logical syllogism as to why the problem of evil is not a problem for us. But... It's not just logical and philosophical. There's feelings involved, right? So let me tell you this. God is not uncaring about our suffering. Why? How do we know God doesn't is not uncaring? He doesn't just talk about our suffering. He entered into it. We have a God who died on the cross for our sins and knows what it's like to suffer. If you're not a Christian, this is the gospel. That God made us and we are obligated to him. But we have sinned against God. And because we have disobeyed God, we deserve the curse of God and condemnation in hell forever. But here's the good news of the gospel. God sent Jesus into the world to live the life we should have lived. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead, defeating Satan's sin, darkness, and death. So that everyone who turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ will be saved. If you're not a Christian, God is calling you this morning. To turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and rose from the dead. And as Christians, and even as a church family, we can now endure in prayer, in darkness, can't we? Because God, Ephesians 5.8 says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 1 Thessalonians 5.5 5 says this, for you are all sons of light and sons of, day, of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. That doesn't mean we won't have a dark night of the soul or a dark decade of the soul. But even when we do, we should cry out to God. Why? Because He's the God who keeps His covenant. He's the God who cares. He's the God who loves. He's the God who is in control. And He's the God who is there in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for Psalm 88. Thank you, Lord, that you give us language and words to express the deep pains of our lives. Lord, we are not unique as a congregation. All churches suffer. All humans suffer. And we get that. We, we forget that in this world with hospitals and all the technological advances we forget about suffering, Lord, but we know it's real. And we know darkness is here and darkness is coming. And so help us to cling to you, to cry out to you. Because of who you are for us in Christ Jesus. Strengthen our church family in this time. We have two members, Lord, you know, who are grieving the death of loved ones right now. So close to their hearts. And close to our hearts by extension. And so, Father, we just ask that you would help us through the psalm to draw near to you. Comfort others through us. Come, help us to comfort each other through each other. And then in direct ways, may you comfort us where we can't be comforted through one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. And we will sing Hymn 450, I Need Thee Every Hour. 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 be Every Hour.